You ever have a pity party? I, I have. I've sent out invitations. Very few people come. It's, uh, it's one of those things in life, isn't it? It's easy to fall into that trap of self-pity. And I, when I was a kid, uh, if, I was to, if I was to tell you about some of the conversations I had with my dad that were the most challenging, it was over this issue of self-pity. When my dad had to correct me or when he had to talk to me or challenge me about something, which he was faithful to do, by the way. <laughs> I'm really actually, I'm thankful now. I wasn't at the time. But what happened is, is that he would, after he would discipline me or after he would, you know, some kind of correction, um, then I would fall into a pity party more times than I can count. And he wouldn't let that go. So here's what he would often say. Now, you realize you're feeling sorry for yourself. And if I didn't realize it, he helped me realize it. <laughs> now, here's what's interesting. Here's what I learned about self-pity. Did you know that you can actually have self-pity about having self-pity? <laughs> I realized this cycle it gets into. And so uh, that whole thing, and I realized he was calling me to take responsibility and not just stay in self-pity. But I remember from a very early age, it's been a challenge for me. It's been my knee-jerk reaction a lot of times. Well, uh, there was a man in our church who was telling me recently that when he first became a believer, he had another man, an older man, that was mentoring him. And uh, he pulled my friend aside one day and he says, you know, I, I just want to tell you as a new believer, if you don't take responsibility for growing in your relationship with Jesus, you will become like your father, who my friend loved, but he was very dysfunctional. And your wife will become like her mother. And this guy wasn't trying to say this to be mean. He was just saying, you realize, unless you take responsibility, you're just going to keep repeating a certain pattern. And I bring all this up because we, two weeks ago on Vision Sunday, said that we believe God's calling us as a church to declare war on shallow Christianity, beginning with ourselves. And next week, we're going to begin a series on the Ten Commandments. But as Steve and I looked at what we might do in these two weeks, we both felt strongly that we needed to talk about the R&R, the resolve and responsibility that goes into that. You do realize that no one drifts into spiritual maturity, don't you? There's this myth going around that God just like sprinkles pixie dust on us and all of a sudden we become mature. It doesn't work like that. If you look at the way people grew in the Bible, they had to be... A, there had to be some intentionality about it. Daniel did not just drift into faithfulness. He had to resolve. And if you weren't here last week, I, I really recommend you listen to the message because it's very, very helpful. I remember sitting here last Sunday and just thinking, man, this, this message is straightening me. This message is cleaning me. I really needed to hear that. So there's a resolve and responsibility. And if you're following along in the notes, here's what I want you to see. Shallow Christians choose self-pity over responsibility. Shallow Christians, what keeps us shallow so much of the time is that we choose self-pity over taking responsibility again and again and again. Maybe you've seen that. Or we just go, well, it's not my fault. I can't help it. You know, somebody else's you know, reason for me not becoming that kind of way and we don't take responsibility. But if you're following along, I hope you also see that to be a fully surrendered disciple means taking responsibility. 
To be a fully surrendered disciple means taking responsibility. I want to just say a word to those of you that are here today that you're not Christians yet or you came to appease someone else. We're really glad you're here. And I don't know what's been going on in your life and I don't know how this message will land in your life. But I want you to know that this message is primarily for those in, the, in this church that want to grow towards becoming more mature in Christ. And if you're not yet there, you may say, oh man, how's this going to help me? What I would say is maybe if you come to trust Christ someday, this message will help you know what you're getting into. This is the direction God wants us to take. This is what he's leading us towards. And so we're not going to drift into spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. We have to take responsibility for that. We're not the source of it, but we do need to respond to what God provides and grow with him. So again, want to talk about that today. And why is this message so important? Well, in part, because we live in a culture that's not encouraging us to do this. We live in a culture that is not encouraging us to take responsibility. Don't hurt little Bobby's psyche is kind of the idea nowadays. Let Bobby do whatever Bobby wants to do. Don't make him experience the consequences. Don't make him be responsible. Sometimes that's just becoming a lot more popular. And other times, we look for ways. We, again, all of us, if we're not careful, can find unbelievable ways to justify doing things that we know we're not supposed to do. I love Will Rogers. He had such a hilarious sense of wit, but he could say such profound things. Look at this saying right here. You can summarize American history. And by the way, in case anybody want, wants to know, I love the United States. You can summarize American history into two great movements, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the what, friends? The buck. Remember? We had a great president one day that says the buck stops here. What he understood was is that I have a responsibility and I need to take it and I need to act on it. And that's how people mature. That's how we grow in character. But here's another reason why we need this message today. is because you may be doing fine right now. You may be having a great season in your life. But just live long enough because what's going to come your way is criticism, trials, and temptation. And you're going to probably have your experiences like I do of failing, falling short of what you aim to do as you follow Christ. What are you going to do in those moments? Do you realize that what we do, the decisions we make in those moments, really do matter? Last week, Steve talked about a triangle. He said, you know, it's probably going to get harder to be faithful to God in the coming days. Wasn't trying to be doom and gloom, just saying. The Bible says it's going to probably get harder instead of easier. And so he talked about how he wanted us to think of a triangle so that every time we got to that point there, we knew we had to make a decision which side we were going to take. Well, I want to show you something that relates to that. Anybody recognize what this is here on the screen? Go ahead, just say it out loud. What is this? Teeter-totter. Teeter earlier today, I was saying that I wonder if there's anybody that's never been on one. And then I had a friend say to me earlier, they actually wanted to go get on one right now. And I thought, that may be more interesting than this message. <laughs> but if you've never seen a teeter-totter in action, here's what it looks like in this dynamic picture of two people. And what you know about it is, here's another picture of a teeter-totter. It's based on this idea that whatever you give more weight to, that's the direction it's going to go. And when you and I get to these decision points, when you and I get to these moments, we either take responsibility or we fall back into patterns of self-pity. 
it makes all the difference because that's going to define what direction our life goes. We're never going to be able to leave shallow Christianity if we hold on to self-pity. And so this is a lesson I've been learning over and over again, even this last week. And I don't know how, where this message is going to fall in your life today, but I hope that as we look at what we're going to look at today, it'll be helpful. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the way of Cain from chapter 4 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And then we're going to talk about how God offers us a better way. And we're going to talk about practical ways of how do we deal when criticism, trials, and temptation come our way. How do we, how do we make sure we, we take responsibility instead of handling it with self-pity? So I want to talk about that and um, want to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Now, if you didn't bring a Bible, we have black Bibles right near you in the seat rack in front of you. It should say NIV on the end there. Just pull one of those out. If you don't own a Bible, take this as a gift. Again, we want you to have your own Bible. And it's the very first book of the Bible, so it's not hard to find. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to walk through verses 1 through 16. And uh, again, I want to talk to you uh, about the way of Cain and then a way to declare war on self-pity instead of taking that way, a better way. What is self-pity? I was reading something this week that struck me. Donald Miller says this, I have a friend who can't hold a job. He's actually had some great jobs, but he can't keep them. And for each job he's lost, he has a story about how bad his boss was, what an idiot his boss was, and how hard he was to work with. I'm sure my friend's boss had some issues, but as I listened to my friend, I realized how hard it would be to have an employee like my friend. I mean, I have to super—I mean, to supervise a guy who was at the start against you, looking for faults, looking for reasons to not be a team player. Add to that, my friend won't take responsibility for his own issues. He assumes he doesn't have any. The truth is, my friend is destined to fail and continue failing until he understands that what he really wants in life is to be a victim. He's looking for any opportunity to become one. That's a cheap way of getting attention, and my friend will never be happy until he gives up and starts taking responsibility for his life. And we've all seen things like that, haven't we? We've all seen people like that, and you know how hard it is to be around people like that. Someone has put it this way, that self-pity is easily the most destructive of the non-pharmaceutical narcotics. It is addictive, giving momentary pleasure and separating the victim from reality. And so what is self-pity? Is it grief or sorrow? No. Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with bitterest grief, but he was not a person who practiced self-pity. I love the fact that the Bible does not ask us to deny appropriate pain or suffering and act like it's not happening at all. Telling us to pour it out to God, to share it with him, to feel those feelings deeply and to grieve in a better way like God can help us. But I remember having a conversation a few years ago with a man I was playing golf. This was back when I was a pastor in Iowa. And we were standing on the tee box, and I didn't know this guy very well. But he was a neighbor to a man in our church. And I knew enough of his story to know that he was probably hurting. His wife, about 9, 12 months before, had died of an asthma attack unexpectedly. And he, it just, he had no preparation for this. And so they, were, they loved each other very much. And so I'm standing next to this guy now, almost a year later, and I just said, how's it going, Lauren? And he knew 
I had sent him some notes and stuff, so we knew each other that well. And he says, well, it's been one of the hardest years of my life. He said, I really miss her. There's so many things she meant to me. And um, I said, well, that's completely understandable, and I hope you know I'm, I'm not suggesting you shouldn't grieve. And he says, oh, I know. He said, but what I'm realizing is, is that a lot of times the way I'm grieving is turning into self-pity, and that's not helping. I remember thinking to myself, whoa, this guy is mature. This guy has an understanding that there's, you, can, you can handle sorrow and grief in a way that either indulges it and focuses on it and dwells on it and makes that the main thing, or you can deal with it in such a way that you can actually let it become redemptive in your life, that it can actually have a powerful effect in your life. And I remember thinking, wow, I need that. And so, again, here, how do we know if self-pity is going on in our lives? Here's what happens when I'm operating under self-pity. Uh, phrases like this will come out of my mouth. Not only will I hear, will you hear complaining come out of my mouth, but you'll also hear me talk about certain people or certain situations over and over and over again. And then phrases like this, that's not fair, over and over again. Again, I'm not saying it's ever wrong to say it's not fair. Um, also, I can't help it. It wasn't my fault. I deserve better. I don't deserve this. Those are all the kind of phrases that tend to come out when a person's operating self-pity. Now do you see why my dad went after that? So again, wow, what happened? So the way of Cain talks about this. So uh, let me pray, and then we'll look at the way of Cain and talk about a better way, okay? Now, Lord, would you please, would you please help us to be more aware of what you want us to see? Um, I was thinking about the irony of preaching on self-pity because when I'm in self-pity or holding on to self-pity, I won't listen to other people. So I know that in some ways, you're going to have to do something supernatural to get past all our defenses and our self-protective layers. So we pray you would. We pray that we'll humble ourselves enough not to listen to this message for someone else, but just for ourselves today and let you do your good work so we can move from shallow mature. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, so let's jump in. Genesis 4, 1 through 11. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. You ever heard of the phrase raising Cain? Okay, there you go. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Have you, have you ever noticed that sometimes when we are uh, angry or when we're dealing with self-pity that it affects our face? Have you ever been around someone that looks like they've been baptized in lemon juice or weaned on a pickle? It's fun to be around them, isn't it? What happens is, is that his face immediately showed that kind of thing. Again, there's nothing wrong with going through times of being down, but this was a reaction to something that was inappropriate. And so uh, that happens. And then now notice what happens in verse 6 and 7. 
It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You have a responsibility. Read the message paraphrase with me from the notes in that first grade box, if you would. God spoke to Cain. Why this tantrum? Why the sulking? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do well, sin is lying in wait for you, ready to pounce. It's out to get you. You must master it. Now, here's what I hope you see as we walk through this passage. The way of Cain, which comes from Jude 1.11, by the way, where Jude, we, we studied this a couple years ago, was writing of how certain people had crept into the church. And their whole attitude was, is that the grace of God was a license to do whatever you wanted. It was a license for immorality or just following your feelings and your own desires. And he goes, those kind of people are trouble city for a church because they are really probably no Christians at all. And notice what he says in verse uh, 11 of, of chapter 1 in Jude. Look at what he calls it. He says, woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. Now, what is that about? Well, there's several things we can make of this, but let me just make some observations here. First, the way of Cain insists on relating to God by my rules, if you're following along. The way of Cain insists on relating to God by my rules, on my terms, the way I feel like relating to God. Not necessarily having anything to do with the way God says I want you to relate to me. And so, again, what's going on? Let me just recap here. If you notice, they both, he and his brother Abel, his brother Abel was, had some flocks, and he had, he had a garden. So he was a gardener like his dad. They both brought offerings to God. When they brought the offerings to God, one was looked upon with favor and the other was not. And the question is, what's going on? Well, some people have conjectured that the reason why Cain's offering wasn't accepted is because it wasn't accompanied with blood. If you follow the Old Testament, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so a lot of people say, oh, because Abel raised animals, there was blood sacrifice. But this isn't a blood sacrifice, friends. This is an offering. So that's probably not the reason. The second thing is, is that in the Old Testament, both animal I mean, both grain offerings and animal offerings were accepted by God and even prescribed. So somehow along the way, uh, God had made known to them what he was looking for. What some people suggest is that because Abel gave the fat portions of his firstborn, which tended to be the best, that maybe that's the problem, that Cain gave leftovers or just careless whatever. Here you can have some of my grain. That may be the reason, but we know one thing for sure. Cain's heart wasn't right, no matter what he offered, whereas Abel's was. Look at Hebrews 11, 4 and 6, if you would, with me, please. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. What does by faith mean? It means by reliance on God, by trust in God, by doing what God wants us to do. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. And by trusting God, he was commenced, commended as righteous. When God spoke well of his offerings... And by faith, Abel still speaks, though he is dead. In other words, he's still a testimony to how to do things with God, to relate to him properly. Now look at verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. In other words, without relying on him, trusting in him, depending on him, you and I cannot please God. It's impossible. 
Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So do you think maybe the reason why Cain's offering wasn't acceptable is because he didn't do it by faith. He just did it in his own independent spirit and just goes, you get whatever I want to give you. It's my rules. I decide. And God says, that's unacceptable. I've been very clear how you can relate to me properly. And to do that is such unbelievable disrespect. You know, someone has said that Cain worship is still alive and well today. And Alexander McLaren says plenty of worship nowadays is Cain worship. Many reputable professing Christians bring just such offerings. The prayers of such never reach higher than the church ceiling. Of course, the lesson of the story is not that a person must be pure before their offerings are accepted. Of course, the faintest cry of trust is heard, and a contrite heart, however sinful, is always welcome. But we are taught that our acts of worship must have our hearts in them, and that it is vain to pray while still loving evil. Sin has the awful power of blocking our way to God. And so Cain did this kind of thing. Have you ever noticed, this is how this works out sometimes nowadays. Have you ever noticed you could stand in an entire church service while Chuck was reading all the attributes of God? I noticed that if I wanted to, I could check out and never think about God. I could think about what happened to me this week. I could think about what I wanted to think about. And again, never enter in. Have you ever noticed that you can give an offering? It can even be a big one and your heart's not in it. It's not given out of love. It's not given out of relating to God. And so what's going on here is Cain is doing what looks like good things, but not because he cares about God. But when he does that, he gets upset when God says that's unacceptable. And so notice that God calls into account. The second thing of the way of Cain is he focuses, whenever the way of Cain is working in my life, focuses on my hurt feelings instead of what, I, what can I learn. The way of Cain focuses on my hurt feelings instead of what can I learn. Notice God calls out the tantrum and the sulking and the downcastness, and then he asks him questions. Friends, I don't know about you, but if you're God and you have a difficult person, have you ever tried to approach someone who's deep in self-pity? Like my dad, he'll tell you, it's a difficult conversation. Not a lot of receptivity, because those self-protective layers go, you're hurting me, stop it, that kind of thing. Or they'll just say, it's your fault, you're crazy, and you can't get through. Here's what I want you to see. The way of Cain, not even God could get through to him. Not even God. When you and I are in self-pity, nothing else matters. The third thing I hope you'll see is the way of Cain ignores God's warnings and justifies my choices. The way of Cain ignores God's warning and justifies my choices. So the question on the table is, did you notice that what God did so lovingly is he said, look, Cain, let's talk. Why are you downcast? Why are you sulking? Isn't it true that if you make this correction to what I talked about with the offering, that it'll be accepted? You'll be accepted? Aren't you willing to make that change? You don't have to stay this way. Don't you understand that, Cain? Sure you do. But then he says, but if you do not do what is well, then their sin is crouching at the door. You are opening the way to sin becoming a, an animal in your life. And it, it wants to pounce on you. It wants to have you for lunch. And you have the responsibility to deal with this. 
If you don't deal with this, it's going to only get bigger and it's going to only get uglier. Now, at that point, notice that God was faithful to warn as well as win him over to a great way to go. And so what does Cain do? Which way does he go on the teeter-totter? He stays in self-pity, friends. Let's go on, verse 9. Then, verse 8, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. Now notice, this is premeditated, what he's about to do. He basically says, Let's go hang out, brother. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Anybody notice that self-pity can lead to unbelievably serious things? If you trace a lot of murders in our country back, it started because someone held on to self-pity. It's a dangerous thing. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. It's a serious deal, and God was faithful to say, look, you're responsible for the consequences too if you decide to blow me off. I don't want you to blow me off. I want to show you a better way. But Cain decided, I'm not listening to you. Notice that Cain's mad with God, but who does he take it out on? His brother. And friends, a lot of self-pity is anger at God. You owe me. I deserve better. You should treat me this way. Whew. Friends, it's a dangerous attitude. And so, notice what happens. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's, what's the last word there? You know people that don't even go to church know this phrase. Am I my brother's keeper? Does that sound like a word of responsibility? It's the same word God had used with Adam and Eve to say, you're the keeper of the Garden of Eden. You have a responsibility. But what happens when you and I are up by self-pity? We don't want the responsibility, we shirk it, and we definitely don't care about other people. Someone once said that self-pity dries up our compassion for others. Man, does it. And he doesn't even give a rip. How did he kill his brother? Well, let me keep reading and we get an idea. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. There was before guns, so either he took a rock and crushed his skull or threw him against something hard, killed him that way, or he stabbed him to death, but blood flowed on the ground. And God says, his blood is crying out to me for justice. What have you done? Oh my goodness. You, your irresponsibility has cost you and cost him and cost everyone. It ruins everything. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence, and I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Huh. That's kind of interesting. You're worried about someone killing you. You didn't seem very worried about your brother. What is that about? Is Cain sorry? Yes, 
and no. He's sorry because it's costing him. He's not sorry for what he did to his brother. He's not sorry for how he blew off God. He's not sorry for how he shamed his parents and ruined their lives. He's not sorry. And self-pity is unbelievably arrogant and blinds us to other people. And Cain, the way of Cain, is ugly as sin. So Cain, by, by the way, notice what God does in his mercy. The Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain would marry a woman. People say, where did Cain's wife come from? There's a couple answers. Either Adam and Eve had more children than are mentioned in the Bible, so he married his sister or his niece, or God created other people that aren't mentioned in the Bible and he married someone from them. He already anticipates that other people are out there. So something had happened over a period of time. The Bible's not saying everything that gets recorded is the only thing that happened. It's giving us different pictures and glimpses. But he marries. He has ancestors, I mean descendants. And his descendants will still be good at the arts, music, building tools, all kinds of things. Except that when the flood comes, two chapters later, it'll all be wiped away. And what we learn about self-pity is that it always brings a curse on our lives and other people's lives. And it moves us farther away from God, not closer. And it's serious business. Have you ever thought about how serious it is? One of the things that used to bother me when my dad would talk to me is he'd say, Jeff, when you act in self-pity, that is a sin. It's an ugly sin. It's the sin that led Satan to fall. It's the sin that led Adam and Eve to fall. It's a parallel with pride. It's a form of pride. You ever thought about it? Satan said, I will be like God, and he fell from heaven. I deserve better. Then he comes along as the serpent in the garden and says to Adam and Eve, did God really say you couldn't eat from that one tree? Even though he said yes to all the other ones. Did God really say? Oh, poor you. Huh. Wow, he knows that if you eat from this, you're missing out. See what he's creating? Self-pity. And he authors this kind of stuff. So if you hear those kind of whispers, you're going to have to take responsibility when they come your way. So will I. My dad helped me see that. So how do we do it? What's a better way? Before I tell you the answers to that, let me just tell you a story. Seven years ago, this week, we walked into this room to worship for the first time. It was an unbelievable happy day. And we are so thankful for all those of you that have come since. But when we built this building, this campus, we decided that instead of one cross out front, we would put three. To remind us that on the day Jesus was crucified, Criminals were on both sides of him, his left and his right. And Mark's gospel tells us that in the early morning when they came out, both of the criminals were cursing Jesus and cursing their situation. But in Luke 23, it tells us that somewhere along the way, one of the criminals saw the sign above Jesus' head that said, King of the Jews. And he realized there was something different about this one that was hanging next to him. And instead of wallowing in his self-pity, something happened during that day that changed the direction of his life. And it can happen to you and me. You see, the criminal, one criminal, stayed bitter, stayed in self-pity. So he said to Jesus, later on he said, if you're the king of the Jews, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. And the other criminal said, don't you fear God to the other criminal? 
seeing that we are getting what our deeds deserve. We are punished justly, but this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turned to Jesus, which is always the answer for self-pity. And he said, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I know I don't deserve it. Will you remember me? And Jesus looked at him and said, I tell you the truth. Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. If you want hope for self-pity, Jesus is the person to turn to. He'll get you outside of yourself. He'll break that cage of self-pity. He can do it. He's done it many times, and he can do it again. But that's the beginning point. But you and I have to be humble like that criminal to do that. More humble than Cain was. But that's the teeter-totter. Which way is it going to go for you? So let me just walk through three possible ways that you may have to wrestle with this in the coming days, okay? First, declaring war on self-pity. God shows us a better way, but he won't do our part for us. Do you own that? Do you realize that? That God gives us salvation, but then he holds us accountable to grow in that salvation. It's a gift that we need to steward and respond to once he's given us that gift. So he won't do our part for us. That's why there's so many commands in the scripture that say, do this, do this, but it's always after we've received Jesus Christ, not before. And so he won't do our part for us. So let's talk about this. What would it look like if you and I take responsibility? First, with criticism. When criticism comes your way, as it does, by the way, has anybody here never received criticism? I'd like to meet you. We all have. I remember, man, years ago when I would receive criticism, it would wreck me for three days. And I just remember I, would, I was obsessing over it, I was dwelling on it, but look at this question. When criticism comes your way, are you more prone to say, I don't deserve it, or what's the kernel of truth, if you're following along? I don't deserve it, or what's the kernel of truth? Now let me just say quickly, there's a number of people in this world that aren't happy and they don't want you to be happy. They criticize everything. And I don't recommend hanging around toxic people like that if you can help it. There's a place to set proper boundaries and say, you know, I'm not really going to be able to hang around you when you're like that. Uh, if you decide to be different, I'd be glad to hang around you. But I am saying sometimes we can't avoid that, and sometimes criticism comes out of nowhere. Years ago when I was a pastor in Iowa, again, I've had this happen since, but I'm just talking about another situation. What happened is, is that I walked by, I, I drove by our office there at the church one day, and we had pigeonholes outside the church office, so we, our mail was in it. So I went to grab my mail, and I was just going to drive back home, just grab it real quick. When I went to pull out the mail, I noticed that there was this little piece of paper folded up on top of my mail. So I thought, huh. So I opened it up, and it, it looked like somebody just ripped it off a regular piece of paper, so it was real uneven. And uh, in pencil, someone had written this phrase, Jeff, your head is as big as a bushel bucket. And I stood there, and I thought, it's bushel basket. <laughs> and uh, I remember thinking, I don't think someone likes me. <laughs> and I thought, I got a decision to make what I'm going to do with this. Can I say I, I didn't deserve this? Or can I say... Lord, what's the kernel of truth in this for me? 
whether this is true or not, what, what, do you, what, do you want, what do you want me to take away from this? And I tried to picture my head being that big and trying to get through doors. And, <laughs> and the Lord seemed to impress on me, Jeff, without you being aware of it, you have gotten more cocky. Humble yourself. And the second thing was, here's the kernel of truth. Pray for this person. They need your prayers. Bless them. Don't curse them. Whew. Huge. And I moved towards God rather than from him. Real quick, can I just tell you a game that someone taught me to play years ago when you get in that whole I don't deserve this thing? My friend taught me to play this game called What Do I Deserve? And he reminded me that according to the scriptures, because I have sinned and not obeyed God and been indifferent to God, because I've created absolute treason against God, I deserve hell, wrath, and separation from God. I deserve no good thing from God. Some people don't like hearing that. But you know what I learned? Is that once you accept that and believe it's true, then everything in your life that's good is a gift. Do you know what shatters self-pity faster than anything? Gratitude. Gratitude. Oh God, thank you that I can learn in this situation. Oh God, thank you for even the most little things like being able to look at you people right now and hear and all those simple gifts. Wow. Second one is what happens when we go through trials. And these, this is tricky, but whenever trials come our way, we have a choice. We can ask only why me, or we can also ask what can I learn? We can ask only why me, or what can I learn? Years ago, Dave Dravecki was a pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. Some of you know he came here to Springfield to the FCA banquet. He had been the starting pitcher for Dave Dravecki, I mean, for the San Francisco Giants, and he had, been a, he had been a star. He had been one of their best pitchers. And one day while he was pitching, all of a sudden his arm broke because of a tumor that hadn't been discovered before that broke the bone. So he had surgery and they thought he was well and he made the comeback, went through all the rehabilitation, came back and pitched a great game that first time. And within a couple weeks, the cancer was back. And it wasn't long after that, he had to have his pitching arm amputated. Oh my goodness. So I'll never forget, I was watching on ESPN one day and these reporters stick mics in people's face, you know, and ask them really hard questions. He said, Dave, don't you ever ask why? Don't you ever ask why me? He said, sure I do. Of course I do. I don't understand this. And he said, you know, I've come to the conclusion I may never understand on this side of heaven. But here's what's actually helped me more than asking why me, is when I finally got to the place where I could ask, Lord, what can I learn? What do you want to show me that I'm missing? What do you want me to see that I haven't been able to see? What can I learn? And he said, once I began to ask that question, then I could move forward and I could begin to see things I hadn't seen. And God has been so helpful to me in this very difficult time. And he didn't downplay how hard it was. He didn't act like there were times where he still wasn't confused by it, but he learned that he could move forward. And friends, some of you have experienced things that are so difficult for me to understand. As I walk alongside of you, as a pastor or some of the other pastors do, we don't understand. 
And you can ask why me, God doesn't get mad about that. But if you dwell on that question and can't move past it, it's not gonna help you, not in the long run. There's a season to ask that question, but eventually you're gonna have a decision to make when trials come your way. The third one is temptation. When temptation comes your way, are you more prone to say, I can't help it, it wasn't my fault, or I won't help it? You say, I can't help it or won't. I can't help it or won't. Some of you know that this is what happens a lot of times, and this has been one of my big learnings over the years. Friends, if you wonder if I ever struggle with patterns of sin or habits or temptation, absolutely. And sometimes when I succumb to those kind of things, it's easy for me to say, it wasn't my fault. I can't help it. And God has shown me over the years that that is an immature attitude that's totally stemming from self-pity. Because 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has seized us except what is common to other people. And when the temptation comes, God will provide a way out. You know what I've learned about myself? I don't always want the way out. But then I'll say, I can't, when it's really, I won't. A few months ago, I read this, and some of you said it was helpful. Let me read it again. It's called An Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Portia Nelson. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in, I'm lost, I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it, I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. And here's what the Bible says, is that if we're going to grow as Christians, here's the pattern. Is that once Christ comes to live in our lives, now it's our responsibility every day, sometimes many times throughout the day, to put off the old ways we used to live and to put on the new attitudes and the new ways of living, to put to death and do whatever we have to do to cut off some of the ways we used to live that caused us to sin and now turn and say, okay, whatever I've got to do to make it right. And we talked about this with the way of Cain. I think I skipped a line, didn't I? Where he feels worldly sorrow, but never godly sorrow. And I won't take time to explain all that right now, but 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that there's worldly sorrow, like Cain had, that is only sorry because we got caught. Only sorrow because we had to pay the consequences. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is sorry because we hurt. Godly sorrow is sorry because we hurt people that matter to God. And Cain didn't care about that. But when God's sorrow is working on us properly, we will do whatever it takes to make things right. Natalie and I, she's in college, so she asked me this summer if I could, we could memorize Bible verses together. So last week I sent her a couple cards to school, and 2 Peter 3, 1.3 was one of them. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. There's no excuses, friends. Not if we know Christ. If you don't know Christ yet, if you haven't trusted him, you can have his power living in you. But here's the last line of that section. As we trust him, he's ready to do our part with us. As we trust him, 
He's ready to do our part with us. I thought about this. You ever heard the story of the boy who was trying to move this big rock one day and his dad was standing right there? And he's pushing and he's trying to move it and he can't even budge it. So his dad says, hey, have you done everything in your power to move that rock? He goes, yeah, and I can't move it. It's frustrating. He says, are you sure you've done everything in your power? Yeah, look, I can't even move it. He says, have you asked me? He says, no. Why don't you ask me? He says, okay, Dad, would you help me move this rock? And together they got down, and they moved that rock together. Do you realize the Christian life is about doing life, all of life, with Jesus together? And that's what he's trying to teach us. But self-pity will move us away from that. Responsibility will move us in that direction. Years ago, I memorized 1 Peter 5, 5, and 6. Look at these words here on the screen. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? Why do we need to be humble? For God, what? Let's read it together. Opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Then look what it says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. While this message has been going on, has God put his finger on anything like he did with Cain or like he did with those criminals on the cross? Has he been showing you maybe an area that you've just been handling it with self-pity instead of with responsibility? And I don't know if he's been showing you that. But if he has, would you be willing to humble yourself before God? Would you be willing to say, I have been handling this in a self-protective way, in a way that's been easier to avoid responsibility, and I am done doing that. I want to grow. I want to move away from that pattern of handling things, and I want to move in the direction you're calling me. And here's the question at the end there. Lord, what area do I need to humble myself before you? Lord, what area do I need to humble myself before you? Maybe you're here, and it's not just an area. You've never, ever humbled yourself before God and trusted him for salvation. And he says, today's the day. Would you do that? Maybe you've already become a Christian, but there's this area that you keep protecting and you keep handling with self-pity. And you realize while you've been listening today, I don't want to keep doing that. That's the way of Cain. I want to take the way of that criminal on the cross where I turn to Jesus. And so we're going to sing this song. We sang it years ago. It's called In My Heart. I'm down on my knees. In my heart, I bow down to you. And this song can become your prayer. It can be fresh surrender. But if you're willing to say, Lord, speak to me. Is there anything that's just sabotaging my life like Cain allowed to do? I'll deal with it. Show me. I'll take responsibility. Let's sing it.